Welcome to the Cosmosphere Podcast, Episode 13, Earth Rising, Part 2. during Apollo 13 of the critical role the lunar module could play in serving as a backup engine. Um, Apollo 8, however, is going without the lunar module. Were you concerned that there would be no redundancy for the single SPS engine that Apollo 8 would need to rely on to enter and exit lunar orbit? Well, you want to remember that uh, I was a brand new flight director at this time. This was my very first mission. And then people like Classic and, and uh, Frank here and, and these other folks said that everything was going to work. I was willing to accept that. Cliff <laughs> Charlesworth and, uh, and Money and people like that had flown a whole bunch of missions. And, uh, and, and if Charlesworth was willing to do it, I was sure willing to go. I'm kind of like uh, Jim Lovell over here. I was delighted to be assigned to the mission. And, and, I, and I, uh, I, I can't really say that I had a a tremendously large part in it because, like I say, I was just a, a young flight director, and uh, and so I, I was willing to accept all that. And if, if they, if the guys in the flight control said they could do it, I, I believe them. Uh, Jim Lovell, I love the story you told me about riding to the top of the launch tower on launch morning. that we had developed, uh, the systems that we were using, 
uh, all worked on following as they should have, and uh, that was very satisfying to me. Uh, Jerry Bostic, uh, let's get to the part of the mission when Apollo 8 is closing in on the moon. The goal is to orbit just 69 miles over the lunar surface. The spacecraft is moving at about 5,000 miles an hour. The moon itself is moving at more than 2,000 miles an hour. At this time, Bob Gilbert, George Lowe, and other top NASA managers in mission control were asking engineers, only half jokingly, how sure are you that we're not going to crash into the moon? Jesus. So Jerry, my question to you is, how sure were you that Apollo 8 was not going to crash into the moon? Well, at that time, I was very confident. We had trapped it all over the transplant phase, and uh, everything was going smoothly. Shooting for 60 miles in front of the moon. And when you shoot through the moon, it's like duck hunting. You don't shoot it to death, you shoot out in front of it. That's why I We were shooting for 60 miles out there, and the moon was going by. I think we need enough to, to put the spacecraft there, and God made enough to get to the moon. <laughs> Then when the spacecraft passes uh, behind the moon, the communication uh, goes dark with mission control. Glenn Lundy suggests that everybody take a break. And what was your what was your reaction to that suggestion that you take a break at this point? Initially, I thought Glenn, you lost your mind. <laughs> Here we've got two Americans behind the moon, and you're saying take a break, you know? But then I thought that's something that's typical of Glenn. That's one of the smartest things. The only thing we can do about it. So, you know, we've got about 20, 25 minutes here. Uh, so, it is a good time to do it. Jim Lovell, can you tell us about Earthrise? Uh, did you expect to see it? What was it like to see it? And uh, did you realize that something profound was happening as you saw it? Well, as we orbited the moon, and when, first of all, when we got around the moon, it was completely dark, so we knew the moon was somewhere very close and funny one day as we kept our orbiting towards towards the other side, there's something something came up and we saw the angel fingers on the far side, and that was really something that uh, really amazed all three of us. We just stared at those ancient craters just 60 miles below, and then something looked up. Uh, and I saw the uh, the Earth come up, and uh, I realized that what I was looking at was uh, something that was 240,000 miles away. Uh, and it, uh, it, it brought my mind the fact, and I've said this story many, many times, that when I first saw the moon at that time, I put my thumb up to the window, and I could hide the Earth behind my thumb which meant that some five, over five billion people and everything I ever knew was behind my thumb. And it sort of gave me a, a different feeling of, of where we are, how we existed. I looked down at the Earth and it was only one of, of, of nine planets in the solar system. Uh, it was a mere speck in our galaxy. And of course, it was lost to oblivion in the universe. So it got you to start thinking. 
This question is to uh, all the panelists, except you, Jim. Um, what do you all remember about the Christmas Eve broadcast and the reading of Genesis? Did any of you expect it, and what was your reaction to it? I can tell you that I didn't expect it. And my reaction was, oh, I guess it was uh, incredible. I felt, I actually had goosebumps. I really did. I, I just actually heard that and couldn't believe it. I thought, how appropriate, really. I was very good in the spectrum, and I thought, well, I got to thank everyone else for how perfect you got the Americans serving in the Christmas season and you're reading it from Genesis. It just brought to you. Birthday on Christmas Eve or Christmas, and uh, most of them that I had Christmas Eve, I didn't remember because it was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day was coming up, and I remember celebrating my birthday on Christmas Eve with the family and getting up. I think it's the second piece of cake. And walk walking into the living room and watch all the way on the TV. And it wasn't long after that that the crew read the, the book of Genesis. And I thought, my 31st birthday, I'll never forget it. But I was also very busy confusing the TV island and running home. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, when, when you finally left uh, lunar orbit and reconnected with home, um, you broadcast, uh, be advised, there is a Santa Claus. Um, where did those words come from? How did they come to you? Did you plan to say that? Where, where did it come from? No, uh, that idea that, uh, be, please be advised, there is a Santa Claus is from a uh, a newspaper correspondent many years ago, a young lady wrote to him and said, I've heard from other people that there isn't a Santa Claus. And then the newspaper correspondent sent out a very nice letter telling this young lady why, of all the things that could happen, that there really is a Santa Claus to, to her. And so I thought it was very appropriate when that engine left and it fired for the one time to give us the increased velocity to escape from the moon's gravity and head us back towards the Earth, that it was only appropriate to, to say that, please be informed, there is a Santa Claus. <laughs> This is for any of the panelists. Um, as we noted, Apollo 8 occurred at the very end of 1968, one of the most terrible and divisive years in our country's history. Do you remember um, being aware of the tumult in the country at the time and also um, starting to understand what the flight of Apollo 8 might mean to the country at the very end of this year? I was aware of what was going on in the country, only in the headline we didn't have a lot of time to read about the, uh, all the bad things going on in Vietnam and the assassination in detail. We were too busy working. Uh, uh, 
was a very satisfying you know, for us to end the year that way. I'd like to say to Jerry, uh, we were really involved in, in doing stuff, uh, trying to get to the moon, but uh, if you go up to uh, Bill Andrews, uh, one of the crew members who, who has a museum kind of fair up in Washington State, as part of his museum displays, he has a, all the headlines, major headlines from the year. And when you see all those things listed together, it's really incredible that all that stuff happened from even starting with the Tet Offensive in January and going on through the assassinations of King and Kennedy and, 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 the, and the riots in Chicago and, and, uh, and then the, uh, all the stress and everything that, uh, do you realize how much was going on in 1968? And, and I'm like Jerry, we were caught up in, I was caught up in, in, uh, in, in trying to, to get to the moon. And so I didn't have time to really think about that very much. Didn't really appreciate it, I guess, until I saw it all assembled there in that museum. And finally, um, Jim Long, I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about um, Mount Maryland and also some recent developments um, with Apollo 8 and the uh, International Astronomical Union. Well, for several things, of course, uh, when we were planning for Apollo 8, we were able to see uh, photography of the near side of the moon. And uh, at the same time, they were looking at, at Apollo 8, we were also looking ahead to see what were some of the lunar landing areas that we would uh, first attempt a landing. And of course, the Sea of Tranquility was the most natural. Uh, and as we looked at the Sea of Tranquility, our job was to look down there in orbit, uh, because we'd be that close we could make photography. I found a small triangular mountain on the shores of Tranquility. Uh, and it pointed into the sea itself. And so, uh, in doing my uh, sketches to, uh, to be informed, I said that I'm going to call that Mount Maryland. And uh, it's sort of stuck on Apollo 8. And when we went around, uh, actually, uh, we saw it down there. And then uh, other people picked it up too on Apollo uh, uh, 10 when they made the descent aboard landing. They actually photographed Mount Maryland as soon as the lunar module departed from the command module. Looking back, there was the initial point, Mount Maryland. And on Apollo 11, that was the stepping stone or the initial point for actually starting the descent back into uh, the Sea of Tranquility for the actual landing. And so I, I, I guess I tried to get the uh, International Astronomical Union to make that a sort of official name. Uh, that was not successful until just uh, last year, I think that was the case, when they finally officially named that little triangular mountain, Mount Maryland. Thank you, Robert. This question's for Walt Cunningham. Walt Apollo 7 was the first manned mission after the Apollo 1 travel. It was the first mission to use the newly redesigned Apollo Command Module. Could you describe your feelings leading up to the launch? 
first off, I found it very interesting to listen to the you know, the crew and the people working on it. Do I have a couple of minutes to put that in perspective? Absolutely. <clears throat> well, the Apollo program itself, when you stop and think about it, the objective was to uh, land a man on the moon. And the first step in putting that in perspective, but I'll tell you this, the first mission was to test the, command, the Apollo command module. Uh, and as it evolved, the next mission was to escape from the Earth's gravitational field. That's what Apollo 8 did, and go out to, to the moon. And you still had to test the lunar module, and that was here in Earth orbit. And when it came to Apollo 10, it was to go through the entire lunar landing mission right down to about 50,000 feet above the surface to all the procedures that had to be done. And then, as you know, Apollo 11 went through all of that and landed a man on the moon. That was the big objective of the Apollo program as announced by President Kennedy nine years before that. If we go back and look at the beginning of that, it sounds uh, to me a little bit different as I hear how we take Apollo 8 and we go to the moon. How did we get there? Well, uh, if you think back about it, we had Apollo 1. Apollo 1 was Gus Christman, White, and Roger Chaffee. Uh, at that time, Wallace Sherrod, Don Eisen, and I were scheduled in Apollo 2. And uh, at that point, we had been able to start changing uh, the design of the Apollo command module. And that was going to be for subsequent flights. And as that was going on, we were busy living with the contractors because they, uh, it was the first time they had done a spacecraft and there were a lot of things that they were not familiar with having developed a lot of airplanes very successfully in the past. So as we were living, practically living with North America at the time, uh, we also were generating a lot of changes. The schedule kept starting to slip. Uh, they ended up having a Block 1 spacecraft, which was a uh, uh, two spacecraft, and then we took a Block 2, then they had the Block 2 spacecraft. And uh, there were some differences between those spacecraft. For example, they were working on a uh, space hatch that was open from the inside uh, on Block 2. And that was already in the work before we had that fire. The public today doesn't know much about that. But all of our astronaut involvement was causing enough delays, if you will, and the engineers were enough delays that they ended up having to cancel Apollo 2. And there was Wally Schrader, Don Isley, and I. At that point, they stopped, and Wally and Don and I became the backup crew on Apollo 1, as Gus had and Roger. And so you kind of changed the structure of the crews at the time. And after about three or four months, as we were the backup crew and working on the first launch of Apollo, uh, you had the fire on the pad. That was a, a bad disaster. Uh, with creating some, uh, well, just detecting some problems that finally they knew had to be fixed. And uh, so about three weeks later, the Wallace Rodan Isaac and I were assigned to the first Apollo mission, and uh, 21 months later, we uh, 
thousand changes and Apollo 1 was the first of five giant steps to the moon. And that's the thing to keep in mind. The first step was to successfully be in orbit. The second step was to uh, escape the Earth's gravitational field and out in space, and that was what Apollo 8 did. Then you had Apollo 9, whose job was to uh, uh, test and uh, uh, perfect the uh, lunar module. That was done in, in Earth orbit also. And then with Apollo 10, uh, they went right down to 50,000 feet above the lunar surface and did everything they had to do up to that point. There's a number, number of reasons why it couldn't land on the moon, but people don't know about that today. But then came uh, finally Apollo 11, and we landed on the moon. So each one of these missions, as opposed to being just unique by themselves, they played a critical step in what it took to beat the Russians. I am of the opinion that by the time we finished the, Gen the Gemini program, uh, we had, at that point, bypassed the Russians in their program, and, and I don't think it's known to this day really how seriously they took landing a man on the moon because they never really got out to even away from the Earth's surface to do that. So by the time we finished up at that stage in the game, uh, the Gemini program, I think we were the head of the Russians at that time, and we've been ahead even today, even though we have not been flying our own spacecraft for a number of years now. So, thank you all. This question is for uh, Arnie Eldridge. Um, Billman and Chef Lewis uh, got you to tell a story last night. Uh, the first spacecraft you brought back uh, did not contain an astronaut, rather it contained uh, the chimp Enos. Uh, you saw the uh, couch that Enos was in uh, in our museum today. Uh, maybe describe the condition of the couch today versus when uh, Enos actually came back. Uh, is this live? <laughs> um, yes, I saw Enos' couch. It looks perfect. Look how he hadn't flown yet. But, uh, uh, I was in charge of the uh, the reentry uh, monitoring at the Point Agrello tracking site for NASA on uh, on uh, Mercury Atlas Five, which was Enos' flight, and. Uh, there were problems during the flight with the uh, reaction control rockets, and there were other problems, uh, possibly in the in the emergency uh, in, in, in the environmental control system on board. We didn't know he was had any problems, but it was supposed to go three flights, and uh, starting with the second flight, second orbit, it. Uh, it had these problems, and we were tracking the base station going around the world. We didn't have satellite communications in those days, so we only had these tracking stations positioned around the world. And um, so we decided, it was really decided by Chris Kraft and the control center that uh, if they continued, we were going to end at the end of the second orbit. And uh, so we came by, we came across the Hawaii site and there were still problems with the reaction control system. 
And as we came up on Guadalajara, which is on the coast of California, it's part of the Vandenberg Air Force Base, we had our tracking system looking at the, the firing of the rockets. They were still a problem. So I had my clock set up on the console to fire retro rockets at the exact time it would cause a spacecraft coming over California to land in the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, we had the problems. I talked to Chris, said bring it down, and threw the switch, and he just came down. After he came down, we found out that not only were the problems with the spacecraft, but he had been very unhappy. He had torn his catheter out. It was part of his physiological condition and all the problems. So. It was a good thing to end. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the only human human focused spacecraft that's ever been brought down by, by ground command. And I threw the switch, Chris said go, and we went. I want to say another couple of things about the uh, Apollo 8, though. Uh, as Jerry Bostic said, when Chris Kraft and asked if we thought we could do Apollo 8 and go to the moon right after Apollo 7. Uh, Dr. Jerry and me, and I was in charge that time of all the flight controllers for the Apollo spacecraft in the Mission Control Center in the back rooms. And uh, we had been through the terrible tragedy of the Apollo fire, and then we'd been through the very successful flight that Walt just described. And uh, we felt very confident about the Apollo spacecraft. And so I gave it a go ahead. But I also had another role. I was a member of the, uh, the uh, review board that George Lowe held on the Apollo program, monthly with, with, uh, with the North American contractor. And I, had, I went to each of their meetings, and I saw George Lowe interact with the contractor and with the other NASA people and define the problems that needed to be solved, define the solutions and approve them, and they were executed. So between my flight control team who monitored these things and felt we were coming in the right direction, between what George Lowe was doing for the program, I felt like it was thumbs up to go to the moon with Apollo 8. And uh, so my vote was there also. Thanks, Arvin. Thanks. Charlie, Duke, this is sort of a plain question. Earthrise represented the first images of Earth taken from moon orbit. What was it like to see the Earth from the surface of the moon? Uh, well, we didn't see it. Uh, uh, we landed in the middle of the moon and the Earth was right overhead. And so you stand there in your spacecraft and you look up and you look at the top of your helmet. <laughs> and the only time I saw the Earth uh, from the moon was when we were just in the high-paying antenna. You had a little telescope and you could get this Earth centered in that and you could see it, but it didn't look right. But at the end of our stay, I did a high jump and I fell over backwards and I remained flat on my back on the moon and hey, there's the Earth. <laughs> and, and it was beautiful. 
jewel of blue and white and, and uh, brown. Uh, what a sight. Thanks, Charlie. <laughs> what was that, Walt? Fall. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it was, uh, I learned a lesson on that. Uh, never practice anything in space that you haven't, I would never do anything in space that you haven't practiced before. <laughs> Don't do the high jump. <laughs> uh, Arnie Aldrich, Chuck Lewis, and, and Bill Moon. Describe the mentality of the flight controllers. Um, Gene Kranz mentions tough and competent. You hear failure is not an option. What does that mean to you? What was the mentality of, of flight controllers? To, to us, it meant that uh, uh, we, we took an opportunity to monitor the and uh, it was our duty to ensure the crew safety, flight safety, and success at all costs. In our, in our view, we did consult on the consoles. And I worked with Arnie, whatever Arnie said to do, we did. <laughs> <laughs> The first rule in it was crew safety. That's number one. And then secondly, the spacecraft and the crew. That led to the philosophy, I think, of flight control and Chris Craft, the young people. The attitude, uh, well, I'll go back to what was. You know, eight, nine, ten, eleven were all critical steps given to them. Right of man on the moon. Uh, and I think eight were celebrated today, but I'd like to say that flight control, the ground network that helped us with the telemetry uh, data and so forth, the booster people, all Apollo 8 and the other flights nailed it. said the right thing about the answer to the question. We trained and simulated and studied our systems and prepared our documentation so we understood the spacecraft, we understood the procedures, and we were in sync with the crew and the simulations we did. But I wanted to say one other thing I, was, I wanted to say in the last little bit I had. Um, you can't say enough about George Lowe, about what a wonderful leader he was. And uh, I went to his uh, control boards with the program and with the contractor for a number of years and watched how we recovered from the, the Apollo fire and those problems. And uh, many years later, I was the uh, program manager for the space shuttle. And when the Challenger accident occurred, I had the job of recovering and uh, getting things back on track and getting everything right. And I fell back on the lessons I learned from George Lowell when we went through a great review of the space shuttle, returned to flight, and flew 81 successful missions before we had a second accident. Thank you. Dr. Schmidt, as the first scientist in the astronaut corps, you paved the way for a generation of scientists. Talk about the importance of science and space exploration today. 
Could I say something? Uh, you bet. Absolutely. I want to uh, remind everybody that the gentleman who was, most of the gentlemen who have spoken with flight controllers were in their 20s when this all happened. You gotta remember that. This was a young person they mentioned correctly, crew safety was a primary uh, goal, but what really was I, I looked at as a goal was how do you manage risk? Because risk doesn't disappear just because you say you're going to solve crew safety issues. The risk is always there, and we have to remember that. Space is not without its risk. And what we've learned how to do in Apollo, at least, was to manage those risks. And that's why all of these, these missions were successful, because the risk was managed properly. And that, that would include even Apollo 13. We learned how to manage the risk of that mission once we understood what the a risk was that we had not anticipated. So it's, it, it's an important thing to remember for the future and going forward into the future, is that we're really managing risk. You're not gonna eliminate it, it's gonna be there. Now, with respect to uh, the science side of things, that really started long before I ever flew. And thanks to uh, Al Shepard and Jim Lovell, we were able to institute a training program that uh, really uh, uh, magnified the returns on each of the missions that flew. Even though Jim did, and Fred didn't have a chance to uh, land on the moon, they initiated a major new training program uh, that Al Shepard flew. And, uh, and that uh, really started to get all the crews prepared to accomplish what we needed to accomplish relative to a true exploration program. Uh, the, the, uh, the patriotic and the national security accomplishment of landing on the moon had already taken place. And then, thanks to, again to George Lowell and others, uh, they realized early on that, uh, that, that we would have a chance to do much more than that relative to the science of the moon and really the science of the earth. Uh, and in anticipation of that, Lowe had already begun, even before the Apollo 11 landing, the, uh, had directed Grumman to start to build a Block 2 lunar module that would then enable us to spend three days on the moon rather than just one day. Uh, very important for exploration, and that needs to be thought of in the future as we extend our opportunities, because the return from a three-day mission uh, was far, far greater than you could have from a one-day mission, and particularly, it enabled us to have uh, uh, environmental control in the space suit that would allow basically an eight-hour EVA rather than a four-hour uh, extracurricular activity. So all, all of that, again, we go back to George, I tell you, I, I'm with Arnie. He was one of the greatest men of, of the space program. No question about it. There were others, but George uh, uh, really, uh, really did make uh, make uh, a major difference. And I, I should add that uh, having spent quite a bit of time as Arnie did in these uh, configuration control board meetings, and and also studying it later, George had already studied the lunar orbit mission when he was part of the space task group that Bob Gilbert ran, even before any decision had been made for the moon. And so he came into that decision in August with a lot of confidence that this could, could actually take place. And, and you saw it all the way through all the discussions that we were having at the time about uh, the Apollo 8 mission, or what became the Apollo 8 mission, is that George was absolutely confident that this could be done. And obviously it could. 
my first experience with the Apollo 8 mission, uh, the knowledge of it was when Frank Foreman came to me and said, Jack, we're going to have to have a lunar orbit flight plan. And would you sort of put that together and coordinate between us and Bill Tenderville, who ran the flight operations planning meetings. And, uh, and, uh, and so I was flying back and forth the key, <laughs> carrying different changes to that lunar orbit flight plan that we put together. It, it was, uh, and, I'll have to tell you, I did not know about the reading of Genesis. Even though I was responsible for coordinating the development of that flight plan, uh, and uh, at the same time, Jim and I were working on landmark tracking. Remember that, Jim? Uh, track, because that was going to be an essential ingredient for uh, uh, accurate navigation of a landing on the moon. Uh, we sort of didn't get that right because of gravitational perturbations on Apollo 11, but all but with the pinpoint landing at a severe on Apollo 12, we got that right, and that in turn was a contribution from Apollo 8 to the full exploration program that we had uh, before we uh, entered the Apollo program. Uh, so uh, it, I, I would just have to say that my experience in Mission Control Center when AOS occurred, acquisition of signal, was that everybody in that center, all these 20-year-olds, were there because of the patriotism of their commitment to the program. And the fact that we didn't know everything else that was going on around us except through the headlines was just, a, 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 I think, a, a clear testament to that patriotism that people were focused on, that this was the most important thing that we would be doing with our lives, at least as far as we can see. Thank you. Today there's a lot of talk about long-duration spaceflight that centers around the Moon and Mars. The ISS has had attendance since 2000. You were one of the first to experience long-duration spaceflight on Skylab. What does the future hold for long-duration spaceflight and ultimately, what will it take to live on the Moon and Mars? Yeah, good question. I think we learned a lot on the uh, Skylab space station that uh, we didn't uh, know about much. Um, uh, much about what we were doing uh, were medical experiments. We had some 60 medical, 60 experiments to do, and most many of them were medical. Up until this time, um, we had spent only uh, two weeks in zero gravity. And uh, living in zero gravity is different than having uh, gravity from the moon. It's, it's kind of cheap, really. The way we look there, the lighters, they have one six gravity. And so the, um, the Skylab missions were an uh, interim step between the short flights and the long flights that were going to be flying later on the International Space Station and going to back to the moon, Mars, and other things for long durations. So the Skylab Space Station was made out of uh, leftover parts from the last three. Uh, lunar missions that were not flown, and so we had some leftover parts and some leftover astronauts. And, uh, we we uh, had three flights of the Skylab, and uh, there are durations of uh, one month, and then two months, and then three months. And we learned a lot about uh, the human body that we didn't know about. Uh, every um, every uh, week, uh, we were given the permission to either stay or to go for another week based on whatever our medical uh, experiments were telling the doctors on the ground and we were always able to go on to the next one so we learned a lot medically uh, about that we also learned how to do, uh, do uh, zero gravity spacewalking 
Uh, we weren't real good at that originally because we hadn't uh, performed very well in Germany and any other uh, spacewalks that we done as your grad have been very short. And so uh, we learned how to make a new space station, a uh, bigger space station, how to uh, uh, live there uh, in, in zero gravity in ways that uh, we couldn't uh, imagine before. And we also then uh, developed uh, a vehicular or spacewalking procedures that uh, we were able to uh, uh, report back and say, we believe these are the things you can do on the International Space Station, these are things you can't do. So once the International Space Station was put together based on the uh, EVA procedures that we developed. Now, uh, I, I'll get back to the, the um, what you uh, were talking about and how this uh, uh, view of the future. Uh, we uh, we came back from the International Skylab Space Station. In our cases, we had 20% uh, less blood in our body fluids. We had uh, uh, lost 10% of our red uh, blood cells, and we weren't making any new ones, which would mean that uh, eventually you're going to die because you so replacing your body every day by uh, your blood marrow, and uh, if you don't replace them, why you're uh, going to run out of them in 140 days. So uh, that, those were all unusual, unique experiences that we had no inclination about. But uh, that was carried then into the International Space Station. We're finding other things now that uh, we've had to uh, find remedies for. One now, of course, is uh, vision. And uh, vision is, uh, is uh, they're not exactly sure why, why we're having um, uh, people who are staying up there for six or seven months to start to have a vision problem, but we're working on that, so that's one thing that has to be solved. But in each of these things that come along, bone um, loss as well, uh, we're finding that we're losing about 1% of our bone mass per month in, um, in zero gravity, and we're going to have to find a race to remedy that. And uh, but each one of these things that have come along so far, we've found uh, ways that we can mitigate those problems. But we're going to have to uh, live up there in the space station long enough so that we can uh, understand what happens if we're away for two years, for example. So I, I believe there's a great hope for us uh, in terms of solving those medical problems or our, uh, the, uh, the problem of radiation, of course. I don't think we know enough about uh, how to uh, mitigate the radiation effects. We're going to have to figure out ways to um, have, uh, have something to eat and something to drink uh, for, say, uh, two to three years on our way to ours. And so those are some of the hurdles, I think, that there are before us. And uh, not so the medical as well as heritability uh, and, um, and a number of other cases that we have to solve. We, we don't want to get to the Mars and find out that we have to rest for a month before we're able to uh, get to work. So there's a, a lot, I think, that has to be done before we uh, end up going to Mars, and I think we can help solve some of those problems in the upcoming uh, plans that we have for uh, going back to the moon and other uh, programs like that. One thing uh, other than I would like to uh, add to some of this conversation is that um, uh, the uh, space program, the Apollo 8, uh, the landing on the moon, uh, all of the Apollo uh, flights, contribute a great deal more than we often uh, consider uh, politically. Uh, because in those days, as has been pointed out, uh, the, the Vietnam War was a, was a very serious uh, issue in the country. Um, um, people were burning their draft cards, running off to Canada and demonstrating and, and rioting and so forth. And um, President Nixon, uh, in about 1967, I think it was, uh, after I just got there, um, 
the, uh, they were about six of us assigned to go visit the president Nixon, and he wanted us to uh, go to the universities and colleges as individuals and uh, find out what the problems really were, what, what is causing these people to do this, and act the way they are, and how can we uh, achieve a, a better situation. And uh, so um, we did that and came back and made our reports. But uh, nevertheless, irrespective of how much that contributed to the future, the facts are that the Apollo program, the landing on the moon, and all they were doing was a real bright spot in uh, that time in our political history. And I think that uh, all the other things that has contributed, well, that's one of those that is often overlooked. And that it was a real uh, encouragement to the people of America to uh, have these kind of achievements, despite the fact that uh, things weren't so good uh, in the country. And I think it had a lot to do with making them better. I don't know if this has answered all the questions that you had, but uh, I'll be glad to try to do better. If I great, great job. for Flight Director Michael Staub, whose honorary teenager opportunity hasn't called home in quite some time. Uh, Michael, while we're celebrating an anniversary, you represent part of the future of space exploration. Discuss the importance of unmanned planetary exploration for the future of manned space exploration. Well, I never thought I'd get to answer a question here. I'm, I'm starstruck here. I can't believe I'm sitting, uh, Kansas boy sitting here with these American heroes. It's, it's overwhelming. Um, I, I want to thank again, letting me, I mean, share the inside landing with the Cosmosphere. Um, the joy, the excitement, the tension, the just the stress of those landings and the fact that I get to work on these missions. And I get paid to do this. It's not a job. It's just it's just going to work to play every day. Um, I, I see the unmanned exploration is, um, I think, a vital part of any space exploration program that we're doing because going to places like Mars and Jupiter and Saturn and New Horizons going out to the Kuiper Belt object in a little over a month. Um, those are places we can't send humans, but it gives us the ability to explore places that we cannot touch physically ourselves, but with our machines and with our ingenuity and with our creativity, we can reach these places. And uh, one of the things I always love to remark when I do outreach talks is when, when I'm working on opportunity and we take pictures of Mars, I like to think that building those sequences, I'm taking pictures through the camera lenses of a machine that only 10 people in the entire world get to work on. And when we take those images, I feel like a part of myself is on Mars. And it is a very, it's been a very troubling five and a half months because this spacecraft that, although it is a robot, those of us in JPL, really do love what we do, and we feel a very strong connection with the missions that we're working on. And I, I always like to come back to a comment that our, our former lab director, JPL, um, quoted right after the Curiosity Lane in 2012. He was paraphrasing a quote by Teddy Roosevelt, and he said in his press conference that it is far better to dare mighty things even though we might fail 
than to live in the twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. And that common dare my things has become a staple of the Jeff Propulsion Laboratory. It's a statement that all of us who work there live by because it says that as a group of engineers and scientists, as a nation, as a species, when we choose to dare my things and push ourselves, we're able to achieve greatness. And that was seen again on Monday with the successful landing of Insight. It is um, in our plans to go further out into the solar system to look for life on the moons of Jupiter, to look for life on the moons of Saturn, and to eventually move forward to taking astronauts back to the moon and onto Mars. And I, I really want to reiterate Administrator Reinstein's comments that, um, at least for myself, those, those of us at JPL, we, we are very excited and we're very motivated when we have an administration that gives us a solid plan. And we are more than prepared. We've got a lot of young, bright minds at JPL who are very gung-ho, and we're ready to meet those challenges of the nation, whatever they may be. And we're excited to keep pushing the boundaries of American uh, space exploration and American technologies and further, further out into the solar system. Thank you. I think we're kind of coming to the end at this point. I'd like to uh, say uh, one more thing that um, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come here and uh, be with the folks at the Cosmosphere. Uh, clearly, I believe we have a similar mission, and uh, you're doing such a great job in, in drawing and uh, projecting it and expanding it to beyond your reach. And um, there's a short story I'd just like to uh, mention to a few people here as to the uh, origins of the Cosmosphere. Uh, years ago, of course, um, there were a number of us who were active in the uh, astronaut program, um, and um, some of us were hunters. I think Jack Schmidt was one of the hunters. Charlie um, Duke was one of the hunters. Walt Cunningham, and we had others who were not here. And we would go and participate in some of these social hunts around the country, the one-shot antelope hunt, or the one-box pheasant hunt, or the Grand National Quail hunt. They would have teams that would come and uh, hunt for a day and have a social deal in the evening, much like this, and also, but not, not quite as extravagant as this, which it has been. But nevertheless, uh, that's what they were, and uh, most of the people, uh, we would go and we could be on the first team once at each one of these places, and after that, we'd become a pass shooter, but we would, we would have groups of uh, maybe four people, a four-man team, of, of uh, astronauts, four-man team of governors, of uh, senators, uh, football players, and so forth. And uh, so these were big social events, and there were a number of them. And we really enjoyed doing, being part of them. And uh, the, the people who put these hunts on were usually the same folks, uh, fairly wealthy folks, who uh, could come to all these hunts and help sponsor them and just be there for the social work of it. And uh, there's, there's one, a fellow, however, who um, invited us to do something different. He said, uh, how about just uh, forgetting all this social stuff, and why don't you uh, fellas just come and go hunting with me on my ranch? And uh, his ranch was about 20 miles from here, I think. And we went and did that, and he said, well, while we're here, I'd like to take you over to Hutchinson, because uh, there are some folks over there that are trying to start a museum. It's a space museum. He said, okay, that'd be great. So we drove over here, and uh, it was, uh, as I recall, 
must have been in the uh, 70s, early 70s, or maybe you know, sometime around there. And uh, so we saw this place, and there was a little hole in the wall, kind of a storefront, I guess, had a few things inside, not much of anything. And uh, so we said to ourselves, um, like some of you have probably said, well, that, uh, that's a nice idea, but who's going to come to a space museum in Hutchinson, Kansas? <laughs> <laughs> Little did they know. But the point is, this is the way it all started in our view, and it has come to this point, and this is unbelievable what you've been able to do and what you're doing, the support you have, and the people who uh, come from a wide variety of, uh, of uh, disciplines and uh, you know, lots of places all over the country. We've met people tonight who come from uh, lots of places far away just to be here. So my answer out to you, and uh, I think I can uh, vouch for all of my colleagues here that we want to thank you for this opportunity. We look forward to working with you in the future and uh, wish you uh, God bless and happy landings. Q&A with you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And our honored guests, thank you on behalf of the Cosmosphere, Hutchinson, the state of Kansas, and this nation. We are indebted and we thank you for what you have done. tonight, we want to leave all of you with this message from the crew of Apollo 8.
Thanks for listening to the Cosmosphere podcast. Make sure you share and subscribe to the show. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are crucial to the success of podcasts, so we'd appreciate it if you could take just a minute to leave a rating or review in iTunes. It helps more people find out about the show, and you can help us spread the word. We'll be back in 2019 with new episodes, more history, more science, and more interviews. Thanks for joining us in 2018, and we look forward to having you back next year. For the Cosmosphere... I'm John Mulnix.